Um, the Brahma Viharas, the, the term Brahma Vihara, Brahma means God, the Brahma God in, in Indian cosmology. Uh, Vihara means uh, home or place or abode. So it's the home of the gods. The Brahma Viharas are the are, are called also known as the divine abodes or sublime abodes. And they're the place of divinity in Buddhism or uh, sublimity, the sublime. Um, they are the um, qualities of being that arise when the heart is free, when the heart is open, when the heart is unencumbered when the heart is unhardened or uncovered. Um, the, we could say the natural qualities of heart um, before the heart gets hardened or hurt or contracted. And the Brahma Viharas are um, a way of talking about the qualities of heart or qualities of being that arise when freedom is here. And so they're natural qualities to our being. They're natural qualities to uh, natural expressions of our true nature, of our Buddha nature. And they're described in um, as these God realms because when when they're available to us, it's as if we're gods in Buddhism. It's it's a, you know a little bit as good as it gets when the divine abodes or the Brahma Viharas are present. And there are four um, articulated Brahma Viharas. There's metta or love or loving kindness sometimes metta is described or also translated quite accurately as friendliness. Just a, a, a natural, it, it's the basis for relating to oneself, to others and to the world. It's the basis of a free heart is to relate friendly and kindly. And, and that, that friendliness, that quality of love, when it meets suffering, transforms or transmutes, um, morphs into compassion. That if the suffering isn't there, there's no need for compassion. But when the suffering is recognized, is seen, then the heart actually has a different flavor now. The heart that's free. The, the flavor, it's not that one has to do compassion or that one even has to be compassionate. That the heart, when it's free, will naturally respond with this different flavor of love in now in the form of compassion. And when uh, uh, when there's not not only is there not suffering but there's goodness and beauty and happiness and uh, well-being the the heart morphs in a different way to joy or appreciative joy or uh, a sympathetic joy a resonant joy with the goodness of the world with the beauty of other beings and one's own well-being and then the fourth Brahma Vihara is uh, Upeka. So it's um, Metta is love or friendliness. Uh, Karuna is compassion. Uh, Mudita is joy. And then Upeka is equanimity. And equanimity is, uh, is the quality of heart um, that is wise. 
And I think of it sometimes as grandmotherly or grandfatherly heart. It's a heart that's really seen it all and can respond to the world with that kind of wisdom, with that kind of big view. And Upeka, I'll speak more about in December. I'll go into some detail. Um, but today I'd like to talk more about um, mudita, about joy. But before, before I go there, I'll say one other thing, which is um, um, about the whole system. Is This is, um, in some ways, this is the Buddhist roadmap to how to respond, how to relate to reality. To relate in a friendly way, in an open way, in a kind way, when there's suffering, to re- that, that compassion is a response. When there's goodness or the beauty or creativity of life, the, to respond with joy. And, and also to have this thread of equanimity through it all. And so these aren't exactly emotions. It's not the emotion of love, of a romantic love, let's say, or it's not a emotion more, it's not, compassion is not pity, or joy, uh, uh, mudita is not necessarily any really exciting even at times. It's more sublime. These are more refined qualities of heart. Emotions, we could say, are a grosser version of these refinements, that within the emotions there is somewhere there's this um, uh, essence of the of the Brahma Vihara, but it's still a little gross. We wouldn't necessarily call it, you know, really when the you know if the 49ers win and you have you feel joy, it's good. It's nice to feel that joy, but it's not exactly mudita. <laughs> no, it's not. And it'll never happen. And it'll never happen. Somebody <laughs> tried. Maybe mine is not in. That's where equanimity is important. Somebody asked that. Right, thank you. But, but what I want to add in here is... Um, because part of the wisdom that comes with practice is seeing the emptiness of things, what's called shunyata. When, when it's personal, like the, the, lack of, the, the not-self element is called anatta, but seeing the, the, the unsolidity of reality is called anatta, is called shunyata, which means emptiness, or is generally translated as emptiness. And emptiness isn't empty. It's, it's a, we don't have a word that really describes emptiness. I, you know, emptiness is it's okay. I like, I like to, to say a bunch of words, like emptiness means that there's nothing solid, nothing static, nothing fixed, that reality isn't fixed, whether it's us or our bodies or our identities or the whole world. That there's nothing solid in the whole world. That's more, emptiness is more a flavor of what reality is. Um, um, uh, It's more like if you have um, um, water, it's always wet. If you have 
this reality, it's always empty, meaning it's not static. But it's, emptiness doesn't mean there aren't things here, there isn't form here, there isn't aliveness here, there isn't a presence here. Um, doesn't mean there's, it's a void. Empty, that's maybe the better way to say it. Emptiness doesn't mean that there's a void. It also means, not only is it, are things not static, another way we can think about how to understand emptiness is that it's empty of greed, it's empty of hatred, it's empty of delusion. That the true realization, this is now I'm speaking to the realization of emptiness, means it's empty of delusion, it's empty of confusion. But it's not a void. Emptiness means everything is also here. It means, from the perspective of the Brahma Viharas, it means there's an emptiness of the small sense of self is, is not in preeminence. It's not what's he here. When, the, when, when we're free of the small sense of self, it doesn't mean that nothing is here. What we'll find is are the Brahma Viharas. We'll find a heart that is naturally loving, that is naturally compassionate, that is naturally joyful, and that is naturally wise. And it's, it's very helpful in practice to begin to recognize when those states of being are actually present for us. Because we're not talking about an abstract. We're not talking about something that's far away. We're talking about something that is more the essence of what we are as human beings, rather than some goal we're going to get to later. It's something that's already part of us, that gets covered over, that gets um, veiled, that gets confused by our conditioning, by our identification with our history, by the um, um, obscuration of what sometimes in Buddhism called the small sense of self. In, in um, Tibetan Buddhism, um, where they, I think I could do this without getting too much flack, that we could equate emptiness with what's called rigpa, or the awakened state of mind. And they talk about the awakened state is not just this sterile void, but there's an ornament, they talk about the ornamentation of rigpa, the ornamentation of rigpa, that it's beautiful, the awakened state of mind. And the beauty is the jewels of that ornamentation, of that garland, our love and our compassion and our joy. Those are the, the expressions of the, the beauty of our heart that come forward when we're not attached to the small sense of self. I've read this poem often. If I can find it, I'm going to read it again. I didn't plan on it, but it seems to fit right now. It's from Wendell Berry. He says, the bud, the bud, and you could take that either way, bud, right? B-U-D. It's like the bud of a flower, but it's also the root of the word Buddha. 
The bud stands for all things. The bud stands for all things. Even for those things that don't flower. Even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. To put a hand on the brow of the flower and to retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely. Until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow, he put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and touch, blessings of earth on the sow. Blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout, all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops of the spe- to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the sheer blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths sucking and blowing beneath them the long perfect loveliness of sow pardon? it's not Wendelberry Galway Canal thank you thank you and so the Brahma Viharas are really are not, not even a reteaching they're reminding us of what's here, of what we actually are, of what gets covered over in the hustle and bustle, in the worry, in the thinking, in the confusion, in the ideas, in the beliefs, in the difficulties, in the suffering. That there's something here that's quite that's essential. I keep thinking of for some reason of like orange juice concentrate. You know how that's the essence of orange juice in some way. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I know that doesn't quite work, but <laughs> but it's <laughs> something about the refinement. Maybe it's more the alchemy is a better way to think about it. The alchemy to, to really look for what's most sublime here, what's most refined in our uh, being that we know, that we touch from time to time or more often, sometimes in nature, sometimes through the arts, sometimes making love, sometimes just seeing a, a baby or a little kid. Sometimes doesn't even we don't even know why or what happened. But all of a sudden the heart is free, the heart is open, and it responds with this love or care or compassion or goodness or joy or appreciation. And, the, and it's not based on our getting something or having something or keeping something or even being someone. All those ideas, they're, they're just not present at that point. There's just being, showing itself, revealing itself, responding to reality. 
And mudita is one of these responses. Mudita, it's appreciative joy, sometimes called empathic joy, sometimes sympathetic joy, sometimes gladness is one of the translations of mudita. just came back from Europe a week ago and I just realized how different the sirens are there. They have a whole different flavor to them. Um, in the Theravada tradition, mostly mudita is emphasized as sympathetic joy or appreciative joy. Personally, I find that a somewhat limiting way to define Mudita. I like Thich Nhat Hanh. What Thich Nhat Hanh says, he says, some commentators have said that mudita means sympathetic joy or altruistic joy, the happiness we feel when others are happy. But that is too limited. It discriminates between self and other. A deeper definition of mudita is a joy that is filled with peace and contentment. A joy that is filled with peace and contentment. We rejoice when we see others happy, but we rejoice in our own well-being as well. That we actually delight in our own being, in our own goodness, in our own success, in our own happiness, as well as the happiness of others, as well as the well-being of others, as well as the success of others. So it's a very interesting um, um, quality because it's not just an internal quality and it's not just responding in terms of, oh, in an in a, um, impersonal way, although it responds universally, but it also responds very specifically to people's, um, not, not just well-being, but their actual success. Their actual, when something good happens for somebody, Mudita is the response, and it's it's very can be very specific and very personal in that way, and and that it can be very worldly in that way. You know, if you get a, a better job, uh, if somebody gets a better job, your response can be one of mudita. If they're making more money, your response can be mudita. If they get into the school they wanted to get into, it, the happiness that can arise is mudita. So, in, in Pali, the root of it, mudita, means to be pleased, to have a sense of gladness. And the Buddha called it the mind deliverance of gladness. The mind deliverance of gladness. And he said it was the hardest Brahma-vihara, or the most difficult Brahma-vihara. And that you'll notice sometimes, maybe some of you, one or two of you may have noticed sometimes when somebody else is, has some success that you don't feel happy about it. Yeah, maybe one or two of you have noticed that. And there's something about that. It's almost like we don't believe there's enough to go around. We don't believe there's enough happiness to go around. Like, oh, if they're happy, then I'm, I end up feeling unhappy or 
or there won't be the happiness that I seek or there won't be the goodness that I seek or the, the joy that I seek. And as Galway Canal said, sometimes we have to reteach ourselves what's here. We have to re- remember, remember, like become whole, like we've lost a, a limb and we remember. We need to become whole again and discover our goodness and our heart's capacity for love and for kindness and for joy. This is from Nyanapanakatera. Nyanapanakatera was a German monastic, went to Asia maybe in the 20s, uh, um, lived there his whole life basically. And he writes really uh, beautifully but slightly archaic poetic language. He says, Let us teach real joy to men and women. Many have unlearned it. Life, though full of woe, holds also sources of happiness and joy, unknown to most. Let us teach people to seek and to find real joy with themselves and to rejoice with the joy of others. Let us teach them to unfold their joy to ever sublimer heights. To unfold their joy to ever sublimer heights. It's such a great phrase. You know, it doesn't quite make sense. Ever deeper heights? No. Ever sublimer depths? You know. Because sublime, it, again, it means it has that quality of even more refined. And it's pointing to the, also to the refinement of heart and mind that's possible with practice. Most of us live in a very complicated world in a very complex world. And part of what one will find if one practices is one will find access to um, aspects of our being that are more and more refined, that are more and more sublime. The, The word that comes that I always hesitate to use a little, but I will, is is there's a purification that happens with practice. By purification, it's not that it makes you a goody two-shoes or something. It's not that kind of pure. It's to begin to refine. The consciousness starts to become refined so we can see the essence or the, the pith of what and who we are. And that is a, there's a very refined states of consciousness that are available for us to see. Consciousness is vast and deep and sublime. And that sublimity is delicious, actually. It's delicious when we taste it, we love it. It's, it's a pleasure in and of itself, the nature of our consciousness itself. And it's why people can go on retreat or do do intensive practice, and it not, it's not easy. It's never just easy. But even for a few moments of tasting the flavor, the real, it's like when you really get really, 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 really good 92% dark chocolate. You know, you really get the dark chocolate transmission. It's like getting it, getting the love that's that is 
our nature or our heart or the kindness that is so um, much the essence of what we are or the joy that is part of our heart's expression as we really open to who and what we are. So sometimes people have a lot of um, reaction to joy partly because people come to Buddhism a lot because they're suffering and that's a really good reason to come to Buddhism is because we suffer so it makes total sense but it would be and also people have a, sometimes will have a reaction to joy because we live in a world of suffering and there's some sense, oh, I shouldn't feel joy because the other people are suffering or other beings are suffering. Or there's, you know, war or there's racism or there's hatred or there's violence. And all of these things are true. It's not to pretend that they're not true, but to only see them, to only um, pay attention to suffering may be somewhat limited. It may not be seeing the whole picture. It may not be see, it may not be seeing the truth of what's actually here. This is from Mark uh, Morford. He said, "Stop thinking this is all there is. Realize that for every ongoing war and religious outrage and environmental devastation and Iraqi attack plan, this was before the war." Iraqi attack plan there are, a thousand, there are a thousand counterbalancing acts of staggering generosity and humanity and art and beauty happening all over the world right now on a breathtaking scale from flower box to cathedral and so to open our eyes to open our eyes to what's actually here means not only to open our eyes to the suffering of the world and the suffering of beings and our own suffering but to open our eyes to the beauty of the world and the gifts of the world and the uh, kindness of the world and the uh, connectedness of human beings and our own beauty and our own goodness And I always like to use the Dalai Lama as a good example of this because he's someone who's very open to the suffering of the world. In fact, he's, he, he himself is known as the ocean of compassion. You know, he's the archetype of compassion embodied in this lifetime in the Tibetan Buddhist understanding. And he really... Is, and that's not just an idea for him or not just a meditation for him that's an actuality for him he's very open to knowing, hearing, t touching the suffering of people of the world but he's not at all limited by that his joy is great his enjoyment is contagious his delight is catching when you're around him. I mean, he's fun. He's a fun guy. You can never tell what, what the hell he's going to do, the Dalai Lama. When he was, last time he was at Spirit Rock with us, he was like doing this whole thing about bunny rabbits and kept doing this. And, you know, he's just 
<laughs> and he was kind of teasing us, you know, he's saying how, oh, chickens sit really still for a long time, too. Uh, he was saying, but you have to think, too. You, you can't just meditate. You have to think. You have to learn. You have to understand. Chickens sit there like that. <laughs> And he weeps. He weeps with the sorrow, but he laughs with the joy. And that is also part of the heart of the Brahma Viharas, is that we're, that we begin to unveil our gladness. And the gladness could be on, on any level. So sometimes it's um, there's a reaction to joy. Sometimes it's undervalued in Buddhist teaching. Sometimes I think as teachers we haven't taught it enough, taught enough about it. Ask people, you know, for sometimes I give people practices where they just have to see the beauty of life. To go out and see the beauty of people or see the beauty of nature or see the beauty of what people have created. You know, like we were, we were playing around with the lights because these lights are very hot and they were all shining on me in the front row here. And, but the, we often forget that there didn't used to even be electric light, that a light is a kind of a magical thing that had been invented. Or a building like this that's, you know, relatively safe and warm and we can sit in and, you know, it's all, it's all been made up. We all take it, we take it for granted at a certain point. And part of practice is actually not to take anything for granted. Not to take our lives for granted. Not to take what's been given, which is everything, for granted. And then things become really the, the delight of whatever it is. And the Buddha was um, not a somber guy. And his followers were not considered, you know, to be uptight. <laughs> they were talked about, I'll wait for the... Um, the Buddha was known as the happy one. And one of the... <laughs> We're getting off. Okay. A lot of sounds. One of the kings who lived during the Buddha's time described the Buddha's followers as joyful and elated, jubilant and exultant, enjoying the spiritual life with faculties pleased, free from anxiety, serene, peaceful, and living with a gazelle's mind. That's how, do you all think that this is how 
it is the practice to be exultant and jubilant and happy and serene. It's possible. It is possible. Even that it's possible is such a beautiful thing. And the gazelle's mind means to be lighthearted, which is a really good quality to have if you're going to practice. And all lighthearted means is not to take it too personally. Even though it's very personal in the moment, in the big picture, it's not so personal. Moment by moment, it's very, we want to be very personal. We want to be very up close, very aware of what's happening. But we also want to see from the big picture. Remember how real yesterday seemed? Remember that? Remember yesterday? It was really real. Or 10 years ago. Can you remember that? What was happening November 4th, 10 years ago? Whatever it was, it seemed really real. It, w- it was really real. But in the big picture, it's not static. It's not fixed. It's kind of empty in that sense. Like everything, it appears for a little bit, sustains, it's real, but then its reality disappears. So it's not real in any kind of permanent way. The Buddha said, live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still. Look within, be still. Free from fear, free from attachment, know the sweet joy of the way. So the Buddha is describing a very sublime joy. He's describing the joy of the path, the joy of the Dharma, the joy of awakening. things that support mudita is not having so many fixed opinions not having so many fixed idea ideas about reality this sense of not knowing and being interested the sense of not bringing something from the past and laying it on the present moment but actually being open to the present moment will bring more joy. Have you ever noticed how much fun it is to travel to new places? How much joy that brings, kind of naturally? And part of the joy is we just don't know what's going on. You know, we know enough to get there. Maybe we know the language a little bit or 
but there's a kind of joy to be somewhere where our ideas are not so fixed, our habits are not so ingrained, that even the the smell of the earth or the spices in that marketplace where we might be, it's a whole new thing, it's, it's different. And it's not just the difference we love, it's the lack of fixed reality that brings joy, that brings a openness, that openness to reality is joyful in and of itself. So curiosity, wonder, awe, Often when we're single, it's why we like to meet a new person and fall in love. I mean, there's a lot of benefits to that. But, but part of what uh, we love is the learning, because we don't know the person. There's a kind of joy or delight in getting to know somebody, of just being open in that way. And also, they don't know us. And so we don't know us in a certain way. When we think we know people, we fix them in some way, shape, or form. We set them, and they can't really be set, but we're setting them. And it kind of locks all of us into some idea, and it leaves out the freshness, the newness, the aliveness that's here. One of the things that blocks joy is attachment. Attachment to fixed ideas, attachment to the old, attachment to the past, attachment to, even attachment to joy, right? There's a great couplet from William Blake who said, uh, he who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. That when we even grab on to joy, we, we kill the joy. But that's not, that's not our job, is not to grab on to it, simply to open to it and let the heart's joy express itself, and to let it come and let it go, to appreciate a moment, a person, the success, the well-being, our own goodness, without trying to fix it, without having the small sense of self come in to claim it or own it, or say, oh, this is me and I'm this, and now I'm a joyful person, and I'm always going to be joyful, because Eugene was teaching about joy, and joy is Buddhist, and you know, this is the most sirens we've ever had. Oh, I should have done a talk on hearing meditation. Mm. Another um, uh, obstacle to joy will be self-judgment the way we judge ourselves, the way we're harsh with ourselves, the way we criticize ourselves, or really it's, or compare ourselves. Or the same if we project it out on others, our criticizing or being critical or being judgmental, or always comparing. 
And of course, the whole scarcity mentality that there's not enough to come or go around, all of it will block joy. In daily life, you can do a joy practice. You could do a little bit, what I said is, you could go out and look for what's beautiful, look for what's good. Look for what somebody did that they didn't have to do, but they were doing out of generosity, the joy of dana, of generosity, to, to begin to recognize that. Or the beauty of art, or dance, or music. It's just, people do it because they love it. Or the beauty of design. You know, I'm, I'm liking bike riding these days, and it's amazing to see how beautiful the bikes are. And to be honest, how beautiful the bike gear is now. You know, you can get the coolest stuff that people make. And it's, and it's really, and it doesn't hurt anybody, the bike and bike gear, unless you fall. I mean, but it's not, you know, it's not like making weapons or something. Human beings are so creative in all these different areas. Or one of the areas that I like to mention is the, um, Chrissy Field. You know, I've lived here long enough. Chrissy Field used to be a mess. Used to be a really kind of ugly place. And then people cleaned, cleaned it up and they restored the wetlands and the birds have come back. And, and then all these different people walk and ride and push baby buggies or push, you know, little things so they can walk and walkers and people from all over the world come and walk at Chrissy Field now and it's beautiful and there's a kind of joy it's, it's, to me it just feels like the mudita is right there in Chrissy Field all you have to do is get there and you'll get a hit of it you know if you just look see how beautiful it is or the people who are there feel yourself out by the water and the fog or the sun or just think of people who give you joy my favorite example of which many people have heard is Mr. Rogers, <laughs> who, who I didn't like when I first met him on television. He seemed totally boring, slow, as unhip as you could get, Mr. Rogers. And then, and then at some point, unhip got really hip, at least in my view. <laughs> after I had a daughter and I a child and I realized like he was the coolest thing on TV was Mr. Rogers and and he was he was really amazing and I like to read this little thing about him Mr. Rogers this was his um, uh, some award after 30 years on TV from Tim Goodman of the Chronicle he said Mr. Rogers is the Dalai Lama of television <laughs> That point just can't be refuted. There is no better spiritual leader in this forsaken medium than Fred Rogers. <laughs> Think about it. In a world of television, is there anyone more Zen than Mr. Rogers? No chance. Five minutes with this man and you're down to 14 heartbeats per minute. <laughs> he is a de-stressing icon, a man who takes his time to finish his sentences thinks before he speaks and when he finally utters something it's slow, sweet and warm. 
grown men suddenly want footy pajamas and some cocoa after a chat with (laughs) Mr. Rogers. Once you bask in his soothing rays, it's clear he's being wasted on the youth. Let's move this man to prime time and comfort this crazy gun-toting, crack-addled, caffeine, and profit-lined fuel nation. Mr. Rogers, yeah, he's gone. Or the joy for really not much reason. There's a beautiful little poem from Rio Khan. He says, the bamboo grove in front of my hut. The bamboo grove in front of my hut. Every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. You know, when the eyes and the ears are open, Kabir said, even the leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scriptures. When the eyes and the ears are open, when we're really here, when we're really present, then everything has a beauty to it. The world is quite beautiful, even the bamboo grove in front of my hut. And it's why one of the reasons that we practice is to get here, is to get out of our minds, is to get out of the past, is to get out of the future, to get here, to get in this moment, to get present. And it means present with both what's beautiful and what's difficult and the suffering that's here. It doesn't mean to be Pollyanna. It means to be real, to show up, to be present. And to let that present centeredness begin to reveal the deepest, deepest, deeper and deepest qualities of who and what we are, which is that we are expressions of the Dharma. That the human being at our deepest nature are an expression of the Buddha, of an expression of the Dharma. And that when we discover this, then we become Sangha. So I'll end with a quote from Shanti Deva, who talks about the joy of the Dharma, the joy of the way, as the Buddha talked about it, the joy of the path, and the joy of realization, of awakening. He says, as a blind man feels when he finds a pearl in a dustbin, so I'm amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above the poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that shades us, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river, the cool moon of compassion, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. And it's, the invitation is for you, is for each of us. The Dharma is, is open, the table is open, the table is set. It's true, you have to come and eat if you want to taste, if you want to really enjoy the Dharma, you have to come and eat. Let's sit together for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.